it in this section of, uh, that we're going to look at today, uh, he, he, he seems to be describing faith as some sort of way of seeing. Faith is a way of seeing, or faith, you might even just say faith is spiritual sight. And we're going we're gonna to unpack that a little bit today. And what, as I was thinking about this passage that we're going to look at, and you, you can open your Bible to Mark chapter 8 if you want, or turn on your Bible if you have a smartphone, uh, Mark chapter 8, and I'll be reading today out of the ESV translation if you want to follow along. But uh, as I was thinking about this idea of faith and, and spiritual sight, uh, a, a little interaction popped into my mind that Jesus has with one of his disciples in John chapter 14. And uh, one of his disciples, Philip, he asks him, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Basically he's saying, show us God. Jesus, show us God and that will be enough for us. Show us the Father. And Jesus looks at him, he says, have you been with me so long, Philip, and still you do not know me? Have you been with me so long and still you do not know me? And he says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. In other words, if you've seen me, you have seen God. And what this pointed out to me was that it is possible to spend a long time with Jesus. It is possible to spend years with Jesus, like Philip had at that point, and still not know him. Or in other words, still not see him truly. And it seems to me that one of our greatest needs, perhaps our greatest need in our whole life as individuals and as a community is for Jesus to open our eyes so that we see him truly. Because it is possible to be around Jesus, be near Jesus, hear about Jesus for years and never truly see him. So my goal today through these stories we're going to read in Mark chapter 8, my goal is just a little tiny small little thing. I'm going to try to talk about who Jesus is and who he reveals himself to be. It's a massive undertaking and uh, I'm not sure that I'm up for the task, so let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to move. Wherever you are, let's pray right now. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your son, Jesus, who reveals you to us. Thank you that your spirit is present in this room and in every room right now where your people are watching this live stream, or even if they watch it later, recorded. Thank you that you are present, your spirit is present in the room. I ask that your spirit would speak, the words of your scripture would come alive, that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see you truly. We don't want to miss you, Jesus. We love you. Amen. All right, so Mark chapter 8. We're in Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 13. And uh, let's give a little context on what's happened so far in this uh, section. Uh, In Mark chapter 8, Jesus has gone to sort of the Gentile regions. He's been focusing his ministry on the Jewish people, the people of Israel, and he starts to break out into the more Gentile regions and starts to do miracles among the non-believing Gentiles, okay? And then in the beginning of Mark chapter 8, he does uh, a miracle where he feeds 4,000 people, and if that sounds familiar, he's already done it in the book of Mark once. He's fed 5,000 people in a different area. So Jesus is continuing to do these massive works of of, uh, miraculous power. Okay, and then after he feeds these the four thousand people, he has an interaction with the Pharisees, and we remember the Pharisees—they're sort of the controlling religious leaders of the Jewish people—and they come to Jesus and they demand a sign. What sign will you give us to prove that you have authority? And Jesus won't play the game. 
He says, no, 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 I'm not going to give you a sign. I'm not going to play your game. I'm not going to prove myself to you. Because essentially the Pharisees were coming and saying, prove yourself to us. See, what the Pharisees were doing in this story, right before we start reading, that what the Pharisees were doing was demanding that Jesus fit into their expectations, their categories, and pass their tests. In other words, they wanted their belief or unbelief to be what determined something to be true or untrue. It didn't matter to them if something was actually true or actually false. It mattered, do I believe it or do I not? Which is actually a mindset we see all around us, right? So many people are trying to figure out what they believe instead of trying to figure out what is true, as if whether or not we believe something makes it true or false. The Pharisees were thinking, if we believe in Jesus, he's the real deal. If we don't, he's not. And so they wanted Jesus to pass their specific tests of what they expected if he really was the one they were waiting for, the Messiah who was to come. And it's out of that context that we pick up in Mark chapter 8, verse 13. It says, and he left them, that's the Pharisees, he won't play their game, he left them, got into the boat again and went to the other side. So they're in the boat, they start going. Now they had forgotten to bring bread. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he, that is Jesus, cautioned them, saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Okay, so they get in a boat, they start crossing over, and the disciples realize, oh no, we didn't bring enough food. There are 12 of us, there's one of him, there might even be more than 12, right? And there's one of him, there's a lot of people here, we have one little loaf of bread, we forgot to pack provisions, we're going to get in trouble, what are we going to do? And they start talking about it among themselves and realizing we only have one loaf of bread, we don't have enough, and Jesus stands up and he starts to address them, he says, hey guys, that thing we just did with the Pharisees, that little interaction we had, I just want to, I want you to know, I want you to beware of the leaven or the yeast of the Pharisees and the leaven or the yeast of Herod. What, what is he talking about? What does Jesus mean when he says that, that I want you to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and aware of the leaven and, and be, beware of this, this leaven, this idea of, of leaven? Now, now the, the word leaven is used in the Bible in many different ways. Uh, and, and most famously, perhaps, when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like yeast or leaven, right? That's hidden into some flour until it works all through the dough. And that actually, when Jesus says that, it is the only place in all of the New Testament where the word leaven is used in a positive way way. Everywhere else, it's used in a negative way, as a sort of uh, thing, thing that can sort of undermine what, what's really true. Leaven is used as a metaphor for, for sort of a, something that's infectious, that begins to spread and actually tear things apart and undermine what's really supposed to be going on. So when he says, beware of the leaven and, and, and of, Her- of, of the Pharisees and of Herod, we can kind of clue in that he's probably giving them a pretty stark warning here, Okay. And, and there are a lot of reasons I think this. There's a lot of things going on here, but, but, but it, seems to be that he, it seems to me that he is referring to what has just happened with the Pharisees. So this leaven seems to have something to do with the Pharisees' unwillingness to believe in Jesus. The Pharisees are unwilling to believe in Jesus. Not just they don't, they are unwilling to believe in Jesus unless Jesus passes their prescribed tests, which is actually no kind of belief at all. The leaven of the Pharisees and that of Herod here is unbelief. It's that spiritual blindness that says, I know what power is. 
I know how God works. I know how the world is. And I can't accept anything outside of that unless it proves itself to me, or in other words, bows to my expectations. The leaven of the Pharisees that he's warning them against is their unbelief. Do the, do the disciples get it? Let's find out. Verse 16, and they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. <laughs> they start going, oh no, Jesus is mad. We have no, is he talking about the fact that we didn't bring bread? He's going to get mad at us, isn't he? He's, he, he, he we're going to get in trouble because we didn't bring enough food. We, didn't th- we made a big mistake, you guys. Ah, why are we always so dumb? And they start talking about them, among themselves about the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, and Jesus says a bunch of questions right in a row that are pretty uh, uh, gut-checking here, okay? So, so brace yourselves. Jesus asks this in verse 17. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not, perceive, do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? So Jesus, Jesus makes it very clear to his disciples that they are missing something fundamental, right? Do you not understand? Do you have eyes but fail to see? Have your hearts been hardened? He begins to ask these really probing questions. And it seems, like that he, 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 it seems like he's saying the disciples are missing something fundamental. But now, wait a minute. What are the disciples actually doing, right? They're recognizing that they made a mistake. They're willing to own up to it and receive correction. Isn't that what God wants us to do? Absolutely. But they're still missing something fundamental. Let's move on. Verse 19, when I broke the five loaves, this is still Jesus talking, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you still not understand? See, it wasn't that the disciples had made a mistake. It wasn't that they were willing to own up to it. What they were unable to do was look up for a moment from their own failure and the own stress and worry of their situation and recognize the one who was actually in the boat with them. What was Jesus saying? He's saying, you guys, how many people did I feed with like no bread? 5,000. And that other time, like 4,000. And did we just have enough or did we have leftovers? We had tons of leftovers. And you're still worried about not having enough bread. God wants us to be open to admitting and recognizing our mistakes and receiving correction for them. But we can get so caught up in the details of trying to fix what went wrong ourselves and trying to to deal with our issues and mistakes and failures and questions. We can get so caught up that we actually can't look up and see Jesus who is in the boat with us and is the all-sufficient one. In other words, our own failures and mistakes can cause us to struggle with unbelief. If he really is who he says he is, if he really has done these things, then surely 
Surely he can deal even with our mistakes, missteps, failures, and forgetfulness, right? And what's interesting is the disciples are so concerned about the thing that they lack that they miss the one who can supply their need. I think this story tells us something really important. This story tells us that the problem is not just out there among the unbelievers and those who are opposed to Jesus. The problem is within. The call is coming from inside the house, right? It it is possible that the greatest limiting factor to the power and presence of God moving in the world is not actually the disbelief of the world, it is the unbelief and failure to see of actual Christians. Our unbelief, my unbelief, I'm in this with you, my unbelief might actually be a greater threat to the kingdom of God than the unbelief of my non-Christian friends. And so what we see here is that the leaven of, of of the Pharisees and that of Herod is actually in the boat among the disciples. They do not understand. They cannot see. They have eyes, but they are not open to who Jesus is, their own situation, anxieties, failures, mistakes, and trying to meet their own needs have blinded them to the presence of the person who's with them in the boat. And then he goes on, verse 22. Then they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought him a blind man, and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand, led him out of the village, and when he had spit on his eyes, I know that's gross, we'll talk about it, and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up, and he said, this is the blind man, said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Not, not, nothing quite clear, they look like trees walking, I'm not really sure. Verse 25, then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored. He saw everything clearly, and he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. So there's this strange little interlude, right? Jesus is talking about leaven and belief and sight and hardness, hardness of heart and all this stuff. And then they have this strange little interlude of Jesus healing, sort of healing a blind man, right? So he comes to this place and they're, oh, please heal this blind man, please heal this blind man. He takes him by the hand, gets him outside of the village, gets him alone, okay? Gets him alone. And then he spits on his eyes, and we've talked about this in the past. That's a pretty common thing for spiritual healers to do in Jesus' day, right? There's something bodily about the way Jesus heals. He doesn't just heal from afar. He gets right up, and there's, there's a real touch, right? There's a physical touch from Jesus. And, he's, and, he, and he touches this man. He heals him. He says, do you see anything? First of all, notice this. Throughout all the stories we're about, we've read and are reading in the book of Mark, Jesus almost exclusively talks in questions. He really wants us to think about where we're at. He wants us to think about where our situation has led us to and what the state of our hearts and our eyes is. So he asks him, do you see anything? And this man says, sort of a little something. I think I see people, but they look like trees walking around, pretty foggy and blurry. I see shapes of some kind. And it's so strange because like, did Jesus fail? Right? Did, did Jesus, every other place Jesus has done a miracle, he's never had to try a second time, right? It's not like when, when he went to heal people, he was like, oh, that didn't work, let me try this new thing, right? 
So, so why did it not work immediately the first time? Because Jesus touches him again, and then it says he saw everything clearly. And it seems to me that my need and your need, in a very real way, is to see clearly. To really see not only who Jesus is, but what the world actually is. To see through the urgent and the chaotic right now, to see who's really in control, what he's able to do, what his heart is like towards us, and what that means about the world that we live in. We need to learn to see clearly. And how does it happen for this man that he comes to see clearly? It is through the repeated, repeated touch of Jesus. There's a kind of progressive revelation that happens, or a progressive enlightenment that happens for this man. His eyes are opened with a process of repeated touches from Jesus. And it seems to me that likewise in our lives, as we receive real, real touches from Jesus through the Holy Spirit, repeatedly over time, our eyes begin to open wider and wider, and we begin to see more and more clearly. We begin to see everything clearly. And man, do we need that. So often our lives feel like chaos. I'm going to be honest, right now, our world feels like chaos. I need the repeated touch of Jesus daily to open my eyes wider and wider and to see everything clearly, what he's doing, what, what, what's really going on under the surface, what the real spiritual forces are doing that are at work, what, 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 it really, what my place in the world really is, what I need to be doing. I need to see clearly, and it seems to me that the way we receive that sight is by the re- repeated touch of Jesus. And it's through a process. It's through a process. So Jesus talks to his disciples about this leaven. He kind of gets on them a little bit about their unbelief and how dangerous that unbelief actually is. Then there's this strange little interlude where he sort of heals a blind man with progressive, right, progressive healing so that he eventually sees everything clearly. And then in verse 27, We have this next little micro story. And this story, y'all, this story that we're about to read, these like two, three verses, is monumental. There's a reason it's at the center of the book of Mark. Matthew writes the same story, and he also puts it at the center of his book. This is a core hinge turning point, not only for the story of Jesus as recorded in the Gospels, but also for our lives. In verse 27, it says, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Now, those villages, uh, by the way, are uh, famous, were were famous for being uh, the center of the worship of the god Pan. And to this day, you can see sort of the remnants of the, of the Pan altar, the altar to Pan. And Pan was sort of this, this, like, this god of chaos and of the earth, and there were lots of weird things that happened as far as sacrifices and, and being part of the, uh, the ritual uh, worship of this god Pan. It was a very pagan uh, place, okay? You can't really get more uh, anti-Jesus uh, than, than this place. So they're on their way there, okay? And on the way, he asks his disciples— who do people say that I am? What are you hearing? What are, you, what are people saying? Verse 28, and they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others say one of the prophets. 
So Jesus sort of starts by saying, what's the buzz, guys? What's going on? Like, what are people saying about me? And they respond like, well, some people say this, some people say that. And, and really, they, they just give him uh, categories that already existed, right? They're like, well, you could be this guy, which we've seen before, or you could be just like one of the prophets, which is like, that's a category we have. We sort of understand what that means. We, you could be like any of these different things that we've seen before. Jesus, we, people think you're kind of just like a repeat of something we've, we've had before in, in our story as, as Israelite people. And then Jesus kind of turns it on them. Verse 29, and he asked them, but who do you say that I am? But who do you say that I am? Jesus asks us, but who do you say that I am? Just like the blind man, Jesus gets us alone. He gets us alone, and he individually asks us, so who do you you say that I am? In other words, for Jesus, it's not enough just to hear the opinions of others and sort of give a assent to them, a nod of, yeah, okay, I'll go with that. For Jesus, it's not enough just to assume that what you've heard from this or that person is probably kind of true. What, for Jesus, he's really asking, you and me and all of us watching, he's really asking, who do you say that I am? On a deep, guttural, visceral level, who is Jesus? Who is he? If we want to see clearly, we have to be able to answer that question. In fact, Jesus came to give us a revelation of the answer to that question. Who is Jesus? Who do you say that I am? Is actually the most fundamental question in the life of a believer, in the life of a Christian. It's actually the most fundamental question in the life of anybody in our world. Who do you say that Jesus is? And good old Peter pipes up in verse 29. Peter answered him, you are the Christ, and he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. That's that messianic secret or the Markin secret that we've talked about a few times. Let me just look at what Peter says. Peter Peter just kind of outright says, you are the Christ. The Christ. That's not really, right? Isn't that Jesus' last name? right? That's not really a word we, we use very often. You are the Christ, Peter says. And that word Christ is a Greek word that is based on the Hebrew word Messiah, and the, the Messiah or Christ actually literally means like the anointed one. And, and generally speaking, that would mean like anointed with the Holy Spirit. There were people in the Old Testament who were anointed ones. They were anointed with the Holy Spirit. So, so that, that's clear. But when they talk about the, not just an anointed one, but the anointed one, they're sort of talking about something much more specific and much more, much bigger, much more kind of world altering. When they talk about the anointed one, it's sort of like we would say the chosen one, right? Like sort of like a, like a Frodo or a, what's that guy in the Matrix, Neo, or like, like the the one, the chosen one, right? This is the one we've waited for. This is like the guy, okay? So that's the first thing that it is, okay? But then there's all these promises throughout the Hebrew Old Testament, okay, the Hebrew Bible, that Peter and all these Jewish guys would have been steeped in from birth. They would have known about this. And all the people of Israel, all the Jewish people were waiting for, for the Messiah, the anointed, the one, the chosen one to show up. And there were all these promises that were just sort of piled onto this idea 
of chosenness. And so I just sort of did a brief, like, going through the Old Testament and th- kind of finding what I could find. Um, it was a good exercise for me uh, about what, what Peter might have meant, okay? All the things Peter might have meant, all the weight that word Christ or chosen one might have really uh, had for Peter when he said this. So when, Jesus, when Peter said that Jesus is the Christ, okay, for Peter, the Christ is the fulfillment of every Old Testament promise made by God to his people Israel, the merciful king who would come and reign with power, justice, and compassion, bringing the presence and knowledge and beauty of God into every corner of human existence, the healer of every wound and sin sickness of our hearts. We get that from Ezekiel and Jeremiah and elsewhere. Sin sickness of our hearts and every brokenness of society, the liberator of Israel and all who are oppressed and enslaved, the destroyer of the forces of evil in this world, like the occupying Roman army at the time, the destroyer of the forces of evil in this world, the defender of the weak and helpless, and of his kingdom, there will be no end. These are all promises piled on top of that word Christ or anointed one in the Old Testament. And you know, I'm, I'm sure I missed many, right? There's so much weight to this word. And the crazy thing is, that's just what Peter understood with an Old Testament pre-Christ understanding. With the benefit of hindsight after Jesus' death and resurrection, we know much more about what it means that he was the chosen chosen one. It means that he was the sacrificial lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who climbs up on the altar himself, receiving the punishment that brought us peace. He is the suffering servant of humanity who draws us near to God, snatches us back from the brink of hell, and intercedes for us day and night before the throne of God. He is the seeker and saver of all who are lost, the bread of life, the living water welling up to eternal life. He is the disarmer and humiliator of the powers of evil. He is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. He is the friend and brother of all who believe. He is the defeater of death, the greatest enemy of humankind, who not only rose from the grave, but ascended to heaven and still lives to lead his people with love for whom he will return and set all things right that we might enjoy fellowship with him forever in a sinless and restored world that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father and also he's God. That's what it means. That's When we talk about Jesus as the anointed one, as the Christ, as the Messiah. That's what it means. And again, I missed a bunch. There is so much. Hearing just a little bit of who Jesus is, is it any wonder that in Matthew's version of this same story, when Peter says, you are the Christ, that Jesus says, you are absolutely right, and on this, on this Christness, on who I am, I will build my church, and because it's on that foundation, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus understands that who he is is the basis for our faith, our hope, our life, and everything. It, it, he is all-sufficient. In the, in the book of Colossians, chapter 1, it says that Jesus is before all, in all, and in him all things hold together. In the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, it calls him the all in all. Is it any wonder 
with such an all-sufficient Christ, Savior, with us through life in the boat, is it any wonder that we as believers are called to be fearless, are called to be fearless, to walk with joy and hope, confidence, and sufficiency? Because this is who we're following. This is the one in the boat with us. And the problem is not that he hasn't revealed himself. The problem is that we are not able to open our eyes to enlighten our minds and recognize all that he is. Because if we did, our lives as individuals and as a church would be built on that foundation and the gates of hell could not stand against it. And we wouldn't just be safe from the attacks of evil, we would be storming the gates. We would be out there in the world tearing down strongholds of the enemy and bringing the kingdom of Jesus in his power and in his name. So how did Peter come to see this? Peter, right? He's not that smart. <laughs> He's just really not. He's kind of, kind of a derpy dude. He's just like, how did he come to see it? He didn't, read, he didn't read the book, right? Jesus is the Christ. He didn't read a book somewhere. He didn't hear a sermon. He just hung out with Jesus, and suddenly he came to see it. And, you know, eventually they all came to see it. And, you know, Peter, we find out, didn't actually understand fully. None of them did because Jesus hadn't accomplished his mission yet and it took him a long time to really see clearly. It's that progressive enlightenment thing we talk about. But how did Peter come to see this? Well, you know, in Matthew's version of the same story, in Matthew chapter 16, in verse, I think it is 17, Jesus says to him, blessed are you, Peter, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. Just think about that for a second. All of this about who Jesus is and what we can base our lives on because of who he is, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. You didn't learn it from a person, from a book, from a class, from a doctrinal statement, but Jesus says, my Father revealed it to you. My Father revealed it to you. That sort of, that spiritual sight that sees through the chaos and our own failure and our own confusion and sees Jesus clearly, that spiritual sight is a gift. It's just grace. It's just a gift from God to open our eyes. Back in uh, verse 22 of Mark chapter 8, when, when they land at Bethsaida, it says, they came to Bethsaida and the people brought him a blind man and they what? Begged him to touch him. They just pleaded with Jesus, Jesus, this man is blind. Open his eyes. Please, please heal him. Open his eyes. What we find out is actually all through the New Testament, the writers of the New Testament, the early church fathers, the early church leaders, they're all, they all tell us and, and, and show us, actually, as an example, they, sh they show us that it's important to pray and ask God for the eyes of faith, to ask Him to open our eyes to all that He is so that we can rest and live and base our lives, base our lives on His all-sufficiency. We plead before the throne. We say, God, please open our eyes. I'd like to read to close from Ephesians chapter 1, and the band can come on back up anytime. Ephesians chapter 1, I want to read several verses. I'll try to read them kind of slowly so we can really hear them, and I'll camp on one verse. I want to read verses four, uh, 15, 
through 23. And I hope you have a Bible open and can follow along with me. This is Paul, the Apostle Paul speaking. It says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So he's praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. That's what we need, right? The progressive revelation. Verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which you were called, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power or all sufficiency towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at, the, at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul is praying in verse 18 that the eyes of our hearts would, boom, be opened, would be enlightened to what? To all that Jesus is the glorious hope that he's called us to, his immeasurable inheritance among his people, and all the power of Christ, the sufficiency of who he is, that he could fill all and be all in all. It seems to me that as individuals and as a church, especially in a time of chaos, especially maybe in personal seasons of uh, confusion or pain or, or even uh, repeated failure, that the thing we need most of all is not to get our act together and not for the world to get its act together. The thing we need most of all is to kneel before the throne and plead with God, God, open the eyes of my heart that I can see clearly. I want to know who Jesus is. I want to experience that all-sufficiency. I, I, I want to stand, build my life on that foundation so that the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. And you know what I think? You know, I've seen in a lot, of, a lot of places in the Gospels and in the New Testament where people plead before Jesus all-out prayer, and they pray for faith. And I have yet to find a place in the Scriptures where God has not given it. So I know that if we come confidently before the throne and we say, Father, I want to understand, I want to see with the eyes of faith and to trust and to really clearly see who Jesus is in my life and in this world, I am confident that that's exactly the prayer He wants us to pray. And He will give us the eyes of faith. He will enlighten the eyes of our heart. And I think when that happens, everything changes. To close, I want to put us back in that first story of those guys in the boat. They didn't have any bread. Jesus is like, watch out for unbelief. And they're like, you mean the fact that we have no bread? And Jesus starts asking them questions about his own sufficiency. 
And I want to leave us with this final question, which I think is going to be put up in the comments of the live stream. This is a question to think about maybe in your life group, if you're meeting as a life group uh, right now, or uh, maybe just throughout your week, maybe write it down, maybe think about it, okay? This is the question. It says, as you journey through this life, are you able to look up from your circumstances and the circumstances of the world? And I just want to say, even self-created circumstances, even messes you've gotten yourself into. Are you able to look up from your circumstances and the circumstances of the world and see clearly the all-sufficient one who is with you in the boat? I'm going to pray, and I think we're going to do one more song. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for being here. I'll pray. Lord, uh, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your all-sufficiency. Thank you that no matter uh, if we're gathered in one room together or in many little rooms throughout the city, in our neighborhoods, thank you that your spirit is here. Jesus, through your spirit and in your powerful name, will you open the eyes of our hearts? Would you enlighten us with the eyes of faith to see all that you are and to know that our confidence and hope and even our transformation as individuals is based not in any program or doctrinal statement or, or list of things we assent to, but is based in who you are. Would you just help us to see clearly, Lord? We plead for that before you today. We invite you to move powerfully among your people. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.